Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, and we're going to continue together uh, the journey we began with the new year all the way through Mark's Gospel. Uh, this morning we're in chapter 3, beginning with verse 13, and we'll move move on from there. Uh, by the way, uh, you know, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there is a, we have an app here at MRCC, it's free, you can just go to iTunes and search for Mount Rainier Christian Center, and it has a lot of notes and kind of the outline of messages, and I've, I know a number of people use those, maybe you weren't aware of that, I can also kind of keep you in touch with things happening. So there's an MRCC app if you want to grab it. Mark chapter 3, beginning with verse 13. And, and uh, as you turn in there, let me ask you a, a kind of a personal question. Are you the kind of person that others would describe as loyal? Are you someone that your friends or your family or the people you work with would describe as loyal, a loyal person? Is that something that you aspire to? Uh, is that something you want to have said of you, that you're a loyal person? Or, or maybe, maybe you wish you were. Maybe you, you, people wouldn't say that, but you wish they would say that. Most people want to be loyal, but not everyone. You heard the joke about the dog, the horse, and the cat who went to heaven. You probably know how this is going to end, but anyway... <laughs> The top angel, Michael, was interviewing them at the entrance to heaven to see what they believe in. He asked the horse what the horse believed in, and he said, I believe in faithfully serving my master and loyally carrying her wherever she wants to go. Michael said, that's, that's beautiful, horse. You can come and sit on my left side. And then he asked the dog, and the dog said, I believe in loving my master and being a, a loyal and faithful companion, protector, and friend. And Michael smiled and said, great, you can sit here on my right side. And then he asked the cat what the cat believed in, and the cat said, I believe you're sitting in my seat, which is a <laughs> kind of not loyalty, but it's, it's what cats do. <laughs> But loyalty, loyalty is a precious thing. We hope for it from our friends. We hope for it from our family. It's precious to us. Are you loyal? And, and, and if you are, to what are you loyal? What are the things that you would say that you're loyal to? Ben Witherington writes about a little boy named Billy, a six-year-old in a first-grade class who was part of a, a group uh, of, of students who were asked what being a friend means. And Billy, with all the wisdom of his six years, gave a marvelous answer. He said, when somebody is your friend, they say your name different. You know your name is safe in their mouth. I love that. <laughs> Someday I hope to be as wise as Billy. Who do you feel that way about? Who are you loyal to? You know, another way to think about loyalty is this. Who or what are you so loyal to that you would betray someone else for? We don't often think of loyalty in those terms, but loyalty happens in those terms. In October of 2019, a, a Florida mother and father faced a nightmare involving their 27-year-old daughter, Michelle, someone they loved as only parents can, someone they were loyal to as only parents can be. 
But Michelle had become obsessed with government conspiracy theories and began stockpiling guns and bomb-making materials and collecting DVDs and books on mass killings and domestic terrorism. She began manufacturing explosive devices and talking about the need to use them, so much so that mom and dad, with their hearts breaking, finally made the decision to call the police on their own daughter because they feared she might do something horrible. And, and after she was arrested, she confessed that she was, in fact, planning to do just that. That's a loyalty that causes us to betray someone else. Some will say that you never betray family. God says there's a time for it. God says that our loyalty belongs to him above all else. He says my responsibility to him and other people outweighs my loyalty to my family. So that being an example, let me ask us again, where do your loyalties lie? Are you a loyal person and where do your loyalties lie? In a very real way, our lives are defined by our loyalties. In fact, not just our earthly lives, but our soul's destiny, our eternity is defined by our loyalties. This is what the Apostle John was talking about when he wrote in 1 John chapter 2 these words. He said, do not love the world or anything in the world. Now he's going to define world very specifically. He's not talking about plants and birds and trees and rocks and flowers. He's not talking about that. He says, don't love the world or anything in the world, for if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You can't have two loyalties. For everything in the world, and here's how he defines world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does, everything in the world comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Where do your loyalties lie. The point of your life and mine, Jesus said, is to learn to love God above everything else and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And that means there's no room for divided loyalties. Mark chapter 3, beginning with verse 13, brings this issue front and center for us. Let's listen and watch Jesus. Mark 3, beginning with verse 13, the Bible says that Jesus went up on a mountainside and he called to him those he wanted and they came to him. And he appointed 12, designating them apostles. That word designating has great significance. It speaks of bestowing legal authority and status. Today we would call it power of attorney or legal guardianship. Jesus designated them apostles that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. And these are the 12 he appointed, a motley crew if there ever was one. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. There's some history to that if you know your Bible. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, who we heard about just a couple of weeks ago, is a young believer, leaving behind a really rough life. Yet Matthew is designated an apostle. Thomas, who we will come to know as Doubting Thomas. James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, who we know nothing about. Evidently, Thaddeus slept through the Gospels. We don't know, we don't know what he did. All right. Simon the Zealot, politics. 
and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Now this moment is significant, church. Let me help you understand why. Because in this moment, what Jesus is doing is asking for my and your loyalty to these men. He is asking us to accept them as apostles, as leaders, as authorities over us because of our loyalty to him. In fact, these apostles would go on to found the church, to write most of the New Testament. When Paul was included as an apostle, he became part of that. And and Jesus asks you and me to accept their authority in our lives because of our loyalty to him. That's a big deal. God is always doing this kind of thing in all of our lives, setting up authorities that he asks us to embrace out of our loyalty to him. You know, I I may be the pastor of our local church, but I'm under authority in a local church. I don't get to say whatever I want or whatever I think I feel or do whatever. I have to answer to the apostles. We preach the Bible. We are under the authority of it. In the same way, God has asked all of us to embrace the authorities that he has established in our lives. Loyalty to him means loyalty to them. And it also means that that we're called to be loyal to each other for his sake. This is why the Bible says in 1 John 4, verse 20, anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You see, God comes into our lives, Jesus comes into our lives seeking our loyalty, first to him, of course. But then because of our loyalty to him, it extends to the apostles under whose authority all of us live. And then it extends down from there through pastors and teachers and family and work and so on. God calls us out of loyalty to him to embrace loyalty to others. And that's a reality that's non-negotiable. You know, there have been times in Rhonda and I's marriage, as I imagine there have been in yours, when some of my extended family has had needs that have stretched and challenged our household finances. And and Rhonda could feel upset about it. But because of her loyalty to me, she is also loyal to them. In the same way, God calls us to receive those he places in our lives out of loyalty to him. That's what Jesus wants from me in regard to his bride, the church. Friends, understand that this Christian faith we share isn't an individual thing. It's not a personal thing. It's not an I thing. It's a we thing. And when we follow Jesus, we choose to embrace and accept one another. In this moment, Jesus is giving an example of that. And until you and I become a we, Instead of an I, we have not heard him clearly. Children's church teacher was teaching the Ten Commandments to a class of preschoolers. And after explaining the commandment to love your father and mother, she asked the class, are there any commandments that teach us how we should treat our sisters and brothers? And one little girl didn't miss a beat. She said, thou shalt not kill. (laughs) You know, that one one applies in this case, but... But this kind of loyalty is a real and serious thing. If I can get personal with you again, I've been allowed by God in grace to serve as a pastor in his church for more than 30 years now. And all along the way, there have been people who are much better than me, much wiser than me, much more intimate with Jesus than me. 
who again and again and again chose to embrace me and then to allow me to lead, not because I was up to the task or had any special abilities of my own. They allowed me to lead because of their loyalty to him. And that's what Jesus calls all of us to embrace, this loyalty to one another that comes because of our loyalty to him. Those people, many of whom were older than me and much more experienced than me for much of my life, all of those people, by their choice to be loyal to, him, to me out of loyalty to him, they made me, they shaped me, they turned me into who I am. And someday, should the Lord tarry and, and I retire out of this role, I want to be them, embracing that next young man or young lady who needs me to be loyal to them because of my loyalty to Christ. Church, understand something. The fact that God puts leaders in our lives is an implicit call for our loyalty, but it's also a call to embrace something else out of loyalty to him, and that's that you and me sometimes aren't chosen for stuff we might choose ourselves for. And loyalty to Jesus means accepting this. Think about it. The, the scene that we just saw, Jesus has a lot of people following, a lot of people who want to learn from him and draw near to him, but he only picks a few. And he takes them off up the mountain to a secret meeting. And then at that meeting, he gives them authority over the rest. How would you have felt if you weren't picked? Just stop and think about it for a moment. How would you felt if he stood in front of the crowd and he said, one, two, three, four, five, six, and his finger, his eyes went right past you to somebody else. And you said, no, no, I want to be in the group. And Jesus said, no, Greg, this group's not for you. How would you have responded to them? Would you have been angry or hurt? or bitter, or would you have said, Jesus, I trust your choosing. You are my high king. What you choose goes. Friends, that kind of loyalty is the soil in which intimacy with your Savior will grow. That kind of loyalty is what will cause you to grow up and into him. Faith is a kind of submission. Love is a kind of submission. And Jesus calls us out of loyalty to him to accept not only those who have been chosen in our lives, but also the times when we aren't chosen, even though we might choose ourselves. You know, a little later in Mark's gospel, over in chapter 5, there's this moment when a man that Jesus healed and touched deeply actually cast demons out of him. The man came to Jesus in the wake of that moment and said, oh, Lord, I want to follow you. I'll go wherever you go. I want to be one of your team. And Jesus turned and said to him, no, no, you can't come with me right now. I want you to go back and tell your family and your community what the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy. No, but Lord, I want to go with you. No, Greg. I want you to go to Enumclaw. <laughs> Seriously. This is happening in all of our lives. And loyalty to Jesus is when we accept that. When we say, Lord, I get it. Will you let the Lord define your mission field? Maybe it's your work. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your neighborhood. Maybe it's your school. Or, or to put this another way, will you let God call you to be Alfred instead of Batman? Stop and think about this for a moment. All right, go with me here. The reality is, when you think about it, Alfred is the real hero in this group. 
He's resourceful and calm, servant-hearted and loyal. He maintains the Batmobile, operates all of Batman's remote gear, feeds and bandages him when he's hurt, masters wealth management, computer engineering, electrical, chemical, mechanical engineering, nanotechnology, biotechnology, advanced satellite communications, and also single-handedly keeps the crazy guy's head together and, oh, by the way, breeds championship roses. Now you tell me who's the hero in this group. Tell me who's the hero in this group. Will you let God call you to be Alfred instead of Batman? You will if you trust and are loyal to the king who chooses. And he comes into my life and he comes into your life, both choosing and not choosing. You know, here's where it gets really intense, friends. If we won't let the Lord define our personal mission field, it means, catch this, that we see him as a means to our ends rather than ourselves as a means to his ends. It means we don't yet know him as Lord. Here at MRCC, we talk about a a simple path that God wants to lead us on as we grow up in Christ. First, we know him as Savior. Then we begin to know him as Lord. And then if we keep growing, we'll begin to experience him as father, dad, Abba, Papa. And then if we keep growing, and this is the most amazing thing, ultimately he will lead us to a place where we experience him, God, as friend. That happens when we give him our loyalty. If we don't, it means that we see him as a means to our ends rather than ourselves as a means. You know, lots of people come to Jesus because they want a certain kind of family. Or they come to Jesus because they want a certain kind of career. Or they come to Jesus because they want a certain emotional condition. Or et cetera and so on. Lots of people see God as a means to their ends. But followers of Jesus people destined to become friends of God, they see themselves as a means to God's end. And there's a world of difference between those two things. Recently, if you've been reading the news, you've, you've heard the story of Dr. Lee Wanlong. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. He was one of the first doctors, if not the first, to discover the coronavirus in Wuhan, China. And when he discovered it in his patients, he could have saved himself by quietly leaving the city, but he didn't. Instead, he stayed and treated them and eventually got the virus and eventually died from it. Now, our world says he's a casualty, he's a loss in this story, but God has a very different opinion. Jesus puts it this way in John chapter 15, verse 13. He says, greater love has no one than this, than that he lay down his life for his friends, that he be loyal even to death. You see, Dr. Wanlong's patients weren't just patients. They had become his friends. He was loyal to them. And here's the challenge we have. Who are we loyal to? Do the people who share the body of Christ with us, the people who make up his church, are they just faces to us or are they friends and names? Are you an I or a we? To belong to Jesus means to belong to the people of his church out of loyalty to him. And when I say church, capital C, the church, big church everywhere all the time. Loyalty to him means loyalty to them. Are you a we yet? 
Now, this reality is emphasized in the very next story, but we're actually going to skip to the end of this passage because the the bracket on either end tells us about something that happened, and then the passage in the middle, verses uh, 22 and following, address a different issue that I want to come back to and help you understand because many people have questions about it. But jump to the end of the story. After this moment happens when Jesus chooses the apostles, the scripture says, verse 20 of chapter 3, then Jesus entered a house, again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your family is outside, your mother and brothers, they're looking for you. And Jesus' response is priceless. It's about loyalty. The scripture says that he responded, who are my mother and brothers? Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. In that moment, what was Jesus teaching? What was Jesus modeling? What was he demonstrating? Loyalty. A loyalty that belongs first to God and then because it belongs to God goes on to belong to those around us. You see, church, understand something. The Lord knows that blood ties, earthly bonds, family only goes so far. You and me are not meant or called to worship our family but to love and serve them in his name because of our loyalty to him. Our loyalty to him must exceed our loyalty to them and if we never grasp that, we won't be able to serve them well. Over in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, Jesus made it even more pointed. He said, anyone who loves his father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I'm a parent. I feel that. But I also understand what he's doing. He's saying, Greg, the greatest thing you can give your family is not you, but your loyalty to me. And that's true for you as well. The greatest gift you have to give your family is not your devotion to them. It's your devotion to him. Because your devotion to him will bless them in ways your devotion to them never could. If your first loyalty is to Jesus, he will make you a better mom, a better dad than you can be on your own. A better wife or husband or son or daughter. Your family doesn't need you as much as they need Jesus in you. And that's why loyalty matters so much. Some time ago, one of our staff in a meeting that we were having, Brent Smith, he's on our youth team, and uh, he he leads a ministry on Sunday nights called Respawn, where kids come together, play video games, and then hear about the Lord. And and we were talking about what he was going to talk to talk about on that coming Sunday night at the end of their gathering. And uh, I said, I challenge him. I said, Brent, you need to invite them to follow Jesus every single time, because it matters. And Brent sat back and he thought for a moment and then he said something that has kind of become a mantra on our team. He said, you know what, you're right. They don't need me as much as they need Jesus. I can't save them, he can. Yeah, that's that's where loyalty comes in. That's where loyalty matters. You know, my wife, Ron and I have been married for more than 35 years. We have a wonderful marriage. We are deeply blessed, even though she leaves me on Valentine's Day. We we are... (laughs) And I'm not bitter about it. There's, um, no, there's a bond there. But let me tell you something. Rhonda didn't teach me how to love her. And I didn't teach her how to love me. 
Jesus taught us both how to love each other. And it is our loyalty to him that makes the marriage great. And it is because of that that he calls for our loyalty. My wife didn't teach me to love her. She couldn't have. But God can. God does. She wouldn't ask me to put her first, and so I would never learn how much it matters. But he does and so on and so forth. You get the idea. I love what John Townsend says about this. He said, Christian marriage teaches you a great many things you will never need if you're single. It teaches you loyalty and sacrifice, selflessness and patience, and how to fear a human being who's only half your size. And that's very real. It's very real. It teaches you things. But only when our loyalty belongs to him. And so make no mistake, Jesus is asking out of my loyalty to him to accept the leaders he's placed in my life, to accept it when I'm not chosen for things I would choose for myself, to accept it when he says that my loyalty to him goes even beyond my loyalty to my family. And now let's back up for a second and look at verses 22 to 30. We jumped over them a moment ago. Many people are deeply troubled by this passage in Scripture because of something Jesus says, and I want to help you understand what it means and what it doesn't mean. So verse 22 of chapter 3 of Mark's Gospel, the Bible says, The teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He, Jesus, is possessed by Beelzebub. It's a word for the devil. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. And so Jesus, hearing this, called to them and spoke to them in parables. He said, How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. That wasn't Abraham Lincoln originally, that was Jesus. And if Satan is divided and opposes himself, he can't stand. His end has come. In other words, nonsense, guys. What you're saying makes no sense. In fact, he went on, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth, and here's the passage that troubles some of us. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He's guilty of an eternal sin. And he said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. So the question that naturally pops up in our hearts is what exactly is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, this unforgivable sin that Jesus is talking about. And as we seek to understand that, let's begin by identifying what it's not, okay? It is not a series of magic words. If you say on Tuesday at 3.30, I blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, that's not a magic word that sends you to hell, okay? That's not the meaning of the passage. This isn't Rumpelstiltskin, if you say the name, he'll come, all right? Or some cheesy Hollywood movie. People, I'm begging you to stop getting your ideas about spiritual reality from Hollywood. Stop it, all right? So it's not about magic words. In fact, the context indicates it's not a thing done in a moment at all. You don't do it on Tuesday at 3.13. You don't do it in a moment. In verse 30, the scripture says that Jesus responded the way he did because they were saying he has an evil spirit. The word saying is in the Greek, uh, imperfect present tense, indicating ongoing or continuous action. So the idea here is not a thing done in a moment, but a thing done over time. A thing done continuously, a habit, a lifestyle. So then what is that thing? And the answer, in order to understand, you want to grasp the context. Jesus is casting demons out of people. In what reality is that a bad thing? 
Okay, that's the idea here, right? They're complaining that he's casting demons. There is absolutely no negative in demons being cast out of people, okay? And Jesus is responding to the suggestion that there is something wrong about that. And he's responding with great heat and intensity, saying, look, if you're going to call this a bad thing, you are far gone. And if you continue to function that way, calling evil good and good evil, well, that's a sin that can't be forgiven because you have so utterly set your heart against that which is good. Now, it's important to grasp because why were the Pharisees doing this? They were doing this because of their personal dislike of Jesus. People do that all the time to this day. We condemn somebody's behavior, not because the behavior in and of itself is is wrong, but because we don't like the person, because we're against the individual. If your dislike for someone personally causes you to condemn their good actions or behavior, and if you do this constantly, you cross a line where you lose the ability to even discern right from wrong and good from bad, and the awful consequence of that is you lose the ability to repent. You lose the ability to repent. If you've lost the ability to say, I'm wrong, I'm sorry, please forgive me, then you have lost the ability to receive the grace of God. Because that's all it depends on, given Christ's finished work on the cross. This is why Jesus, by the way, the same idea here, this is why Jesus told the parable of the good Samaritan. The Samaritans of his day had all kinds of crazy ideas about God. They were rejected by the Jews because of them. And yet it's the Samaritan that's in the ditch helping the hurting man. And the Jew who's condemning him for being a Samaritan, Jesus' point is, hey, what he's doing is good. I don't care who helps that man. It's a good thing. But very often we fall into the same kind of trap, calling evil good and good evil. In fact, our culture is sunk deep in it. I'll give you a pointed example of this. You can go back and read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. When the three angels came to Lot's house in Sodom and Gomorrah, the crowd surrounded him and said, it is your civic duty to send these guests of yours out to participate in homosexual sex with us here in the city square. It's your virtue. Church, if you go that far down the road, there's no coming back. But it just doesn't have to do with homosexuality. In fact, Ezekiel tells us in chapter 16, verses 49 and 50, that the great sin Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed for was their indifference to the poor. Read it in your Bible. Homosexuality just happened to be the context in that moment. But the bigger idea is of calling evil good and good evil. When, when we begin to do that, we lose our ability to repent and to receive the grace of God. When we call sexual immorality a virtue or even a responsibility, or we say that protecting our wealth is more important than tending to the poor, the alien, and the refugee, or when we love our country more than Christ's kingdom, or any of a thousand versions of the same, that's when we enter into the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, ultimately, church, the great question of our loyalty comes down to this. Either we, see, uh, either we are loyal to ourselves or we're loyal to Jesus. Which is why he says in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up the cross and follow me. When I am loyal to Jesus, I will betray many other things for him. And it will be for their blessing and benefit. Understand this. This morning what God is saying 
to me, to you, is where do your loyalties lie? Have you sorted them out? You are defined by them. So where lies your loyalty? Where is God asking you this morning to put your loyalty to him above your loyalty to someone or something else? Where is he asking you to put your loyalty to him above your comfort or your security or your reputation or your country or your politics or your family or yourself? Where is God calling you to put your loyalty to him first? Now understand something. When God, and this is where we finish, when God asks for my loyalty and your loyalty in this way, he's asking it from a very specific place in his own heart. And that's this, his loyalty to you is absolute. His loyalty to you is so great and so complete that he would come to earth, humble himself as a human being, take upon himself the punishment for our sins on the cross, and then die for those sins on our behalf. That's how great his loyalty to us is. And out of that loyalty to us, he asks for our loyalty to him. Because he is utterly for us, he asks us to be utterly for him. Patrick Morley, in his men's devotional book, The Man in the Mirror, tells an amazing story. It's a story of three men, three friends, who went on a fishing trip in Alaska, a week together, guys week. One of them happened to be a private pilot, and so he was able to rent a plane. One of them took along his 12-year-old son, and the four of them headed up to Alaska to just have this glorious week of fishing. They flew into a remote, secluded bay, set up camp, had an amazing week. When the time came for them to leave, they got back into the plane and started the takeoff process, and only then discovered that there had been a leak in one of the pontoons and the, the pontoon was filling with water. The plane was too heavy, lopsided. And when they went to take off, it plunged back into the ocean. All four were able to get out of the plane, but that's when the real problem developed. You see, where they got out happened to be in a powerful riptide that endeavored to drag them out to sea. It was a scramble, it was a frantic moment. The men quickly realized they were strong enough and smart enough to get out of the riptide, but the 12-year-old boy couldn't. They cried out to him. They tried to save him, but the tide was pulling him away. He couldn't help. They couldn't get to him. Finally, they realized they weren't going to be able to save the boy. That's when the boy's dad turned to his friends and said, I'm going with him. I don't want him to be alone when he passes from this life. So I'm going to go with him, fellas. I love you. Tell my wife I love her. I'm going to be with my son. That's what God in Christ has done for you and I. He came to earth and said, I don't want you to live in terror of death. I'm going to go through it for you so you can trust me with it. And it is out of that loyalty that he asks for yours and mine. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Maybe you're a believer, you know Jesus as your Savior, but you've never given him your number one loyalty. You've never received him as your Lord, your King, your Master. You've never surrendered to his choosing and his not choosing in your life. The Holy Spirit is inviting you to do that this morning. As you 
give him your first loyalty, your family will be blessed. Your friendships will grow richer and deeper. Your usefulness in this world will multiply. But only as you put him first. Maybe you need to do that this morning. You've never done it. Or you did it and forgot. Put it back where it belongs this morning. Maybe you never knew that God loves you so much that he would come and pay the price for your sins. This morning you realize it for the first time. You want to respond to him. The gospel is very simple. If you confess to God that you're a sinner and that you need a savior, in that moment, God adopts you as his own daughter, his own son. And that can happen right here and right now. Just say to him, yes, God, I've sinned. I need a savior. Be my savior. And in this moment, he will become that. You will have eternal life. God, we thank you for your word this morning. And Father, as we go from here today, let it be with a a sharp awareness of where our loyalties lie. And let those loyalties make you proud of us in this world. We pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me, church?